from the Cumberland Plateau and the University of the South. This is the Swanee Review Podcast. I'm here today with Joanna Pearson. Joanna is a poet and fiction writer. Today, our conversation will revolve mainly around the latter. She's released two collections of stories, Every Human Love, and more recently, Now You Know It All, which was published last October. Every Human Love was a finalist for the Shirley Jackson Awards, the Janet Heidinger Kafka Prize for Fiction, and the Forward Indies Awards. Now You Know It All was chosen by Edward P. Jones for the 2021 Drew Hines Literature Prize. Joanna holds an MFA in poetry from the Johns Hopkins University Writing Seminars and an MD from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. Joanna, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. We're lucky to have you in Swanee as a scholar at the Swanee Writers Conference. The second week of the conference has just kicked off, and I wanted to ask you how it's going so far. It's great. You know, I came to Sewanee once before as a poetry scholar a decade ago. And it was wonderful then. So, so I mean, that was that was also a great experience, but it's better. I mean, this is better. I mean, so there, there's something, there's something subtle in, in just the, I'm not sure what it is. I've actually, I was discussing this with some other attendees earlier, but it just feels even warmer and more supportive and more, like you could just walk up to any table and and sit down and be and be welcomed and i love my two faculty members that i have i'm in a workshop with Holly Goddard Jones and Sarah Shunyan Bynum and they are fantastic oh that's wonderful yeah. to hear do you have any takeaways from the past week or new insights about your work i think so much of what i've done with fiction if I do things right, I feel like I might have done them accidentally, accidentally on the basis of being, I'm, I'm a pretty voracious reader, but I don't think that I have, not not having had formal training or an MFA in fiction, I don't think I have the craft language that that I think people who've really studied fiction have. And I went to a particularly good craft talk by Holly, whom I just mentioned, and I don't know that I think that's what I'm what I'm getting. It's not a any particular point, but I think it's hearing people talk about story structure and reading a piece and having people talk about whatever it is, interiority or dialogue or story arc. And I think a lot of it is stuff that I might know intuitively, but I have not had people talk about so so well really right it's yeah. nice to put language yeah. to it and yeah. be able to talk with other people that have that experience. E- exactly exactly and i almost find i mean i haven't i have not yet workshopped my story but i almost find that it's even more helpful for me to hear another person's piece workshopped because i've got enough detachment to sort of see the machinery mm. um and then also I tend to feel on the spot when people are talking about my own work but yeah I, I love it it's it's just it it's the best summer camp for adults yeah. love that <laughs> would you like to talk about what you're working on right now oh I would love to this story is just a freestanding story and it was it happened to be the one that I had mostly recently written that felt like it was far enough along to be discussed, but 
wasn't at a place where I, they're, they're, I get to a place where I don't want feedback at a certain point. The bigger project that I'm working on, though, I, I'm I'm kind of trying to put together a novel. Um, you hear the hesitation in my voice. I'm working on, or I've been working on, a larger story that takes place in both 1999 and 2019, and centers on a, a death of a. a, a beautiful, beloved college student in in Chapel Hill, F- fictional, fictional student, of course, and kind of the way that that the, the ripples from that event sort of touch many different lives. And then I think I'm also interested in, I, I don't want to say I'm interested in true crime in a salacious way, but I'm interested in, I think recently there have been a lot of considerations of the way we look at true crime that also interrogate the true crime genre, if that makes sense. So yeah, so I'm interested in like the like sort of the way that people get turned into martyrs and sort of canonized and mythologized. And then I that probably gives you plenty right there. Yeah, no, that sounds wonderful. And I think you can see touches of that in your collection now you know it all as well. As both a poet and fiction writer, you have experience across genres. How does it feel to transition between the two and what draws you to write in each? You know, the funny thing is that I don't mess with poetry anymore. And that that is a weird thing to say, but I feel like I'm done with it or or maybe it's done with me. I I loved it and it was very important to me for a long time and I think you can you can see that I often will have I mean even this title comes from a poem now now you know it all comes from Yeats but often I'll have characters who themselves are lapsed poets or or for whom a certain poem was really meaningful to them in a certain part of their life but I, I'm I became less interested in poetry and that no disrespect to the wonderful poets at work but it just it was it was done with me and it happened relatively recently i mean it was i was finishing my residency training and i had recently had my older daughter and for whatever reason i just started writing a short story and i think prior to that point i mean that's always what i'd read i'd always read tons of fiction but i think because i'd been kind of funneled along the the poetry path i didn't feel I didn't feel allowed to write fiction. I thought, oh gosh, I must not know what I'm doing. People have told all the secrets, something about a triangle. I, I thought there was this whole secret handshake world that that I wouldn't be allowed to enter because I, I hadn't been taught anything. And then I just started doing it and I love it. I love, I love, I mean, that's what I've always, I, I should have known because that's always what I read. But I think what I love about fiction is that you've got a little more space and i think i think i'm still really interested in in pleasure which maybe sounds and maybe that doesn't sound sophisticated but i think i think at the end of the day we come to we come to literature because we want to find pleasure in it and be moved and enter this kind of beautiful artifice but an artifice that feels real and i don't know for whatever reason it felt like the space for that was there for me in fiction more so than poetry. Absolutely. I think delight is a really important reason that readers come to appease. And and I think fiction can offer a level of accessibility that 
poetry doesn't always yeah. have. Yeah. I think you're right. I think sometimes sometimes I wasn't feeling welcomed as a reader. It felt like I was entering a very private space. Whereas with fiction, fiction can be incredibly challenging, incredibly complex, but I still feel like someone built it carefully for me to enter as a as a reader. I think I still think in terms of probably shapes that probably come from poetry. I still have this feeling of like how there are shapes that that sort of get turned and reflect each other in the best stories. They kind of get turned on different angles. So I I think that that I mean I still I'm sure I retain something of my poetry past. No, I think you talking about shapes is really interesting. I feel like a lot of your stories have almost that like Volta moment mm-hmm. more clearly than a lot of other fiction. Yeah. So that's really interesting. Oh, Hayden, you're I love that. I didn't I haven't thought about it as a Volta moment, but that is the that is the perfect way of putting what I'm attempting to do. Yeah. So the Swanee Review published your story, Rome, which appeared in the summer 2020 issue and is the leadoff story. And now you know it all. I may be biased here, but this story was one of my favorites in the collection. Would you mind reading some of it for us? I would love to. This is from Rome. But when Paul woke up, I saw the way he looked at me. His repulsion was so powerful, I could have believed I'd transformed into one of the bristled sows on his father's farm. Oh God, Paul said. I could see his mouth working in silent, anxious recitation. Oh God, he said in disgust, in anguish, in regret. That shouldn't have happened. I'm sorry, are you, should we? He made a kind of raking gesture then that I somehow understood. Relax, I told him, I'm on the pill. I had been for years to help regulate my cycles. Of course, I should have known Paul well enough to have predicted what might happen. He kept at it. He muttered to himself. He teared up. He worried aloud. While we wandered the Duomo, he calculated due dates. His brow furrowed. Of course, he said morosely, his parents would want him to marry me. As if there were a baby definitely happening. As if that baby were a monster as if I were a monster who'd entrapped him. He paced like a prisoner. He did not let up in the days that followed. You'll tell me when your period comes, he asked, not once, but many times, contagious in his misery. You'll let me know? I scoffed. I can't go home now, he said, shaking his head like a scolded child. Not now, not with this. There's nothing keeping you, I said, but it wounded me to say it. You don't know for sure. It's your mother you're worried about, I said, but it wounded me again and deeper the way he went on. This is about her, your mother. We're fine, the same, like nothing ever happened. I explained to him the unlikelihood, the almost impossible odds. Eventually, when no logic would prevail, I gave up. I laughed bitterly in his face while he fretted. I called him an idiot in the lovely, uneven streets of Florence. Finally, on a train from Venice, I brought him to the swaying bathroom stall and showed him what he wanted. Blood. I was wicked about it. Disgusting, like a hog on his daddy's farm, wallowing in filth. Here, I said, touch it. He blanched, but he did what I said. You know your mother's dying. I said it plainly, watching his face contort. 
He already knew, but saying it out loud was cruelty. She's dying, and there is no baby. Go home to her if you want. Just go home. The train swung on a curve, and he fell back, catching himself against the foul little sink. I could see it in his eyes, the frantic way they flickered, fear, relief, fear. I shoved him out of the way so that he couldn't even wash the blood from his fingers. And then we arrived in Rome. So in this story, you move deftly between timelines, revealing the backstory of Paul and Lindsay's relationship as you simultaneously follow Lindsay on a day trip alone in Rome. How do you smoothly integrate these chronologies while also managing to withhold bits of information? You know, I I don't know. Again, it's this is the problem with doing so many things intuitively. I I don't know. I love it. I love it when it happens. You can feel maybe that also comes from poetry. I can feel a rightness there when it feels like I'm moving between timelines and it's working. I think of stories and again this is this is coming from nothing but my reading and intuition, but I think of them as sort of having mass and then also acceleration and trajectory. You know what I mean? And so you have to sort of accumulate a certain amount of mass. And it's like the story stuff and the details and the and the the world and the people. But then you also have to have a kind of propulsion. And I think, I mean, I I guess it's like you know it when you read it, you can feel when it gets out of balance. But I that that's the way that I I sort of think of it. And so you can feel sometimes in a story that's not working or in a draft where you're kind of sagging like you're you're either sagging with you've got too much mass but you're not moving or maybe you're moving very briskly but you haven't quite built up the the story stuff beneath you there is this way where it's like you've balanced both mm-hmm. and in this story i feel like almost split it down the middle of the different timelines yeah yeah what does fiction allow you to do with time that attracts you as a writer? I do like a a story that, well, I like a story that stays in a single moment, but I do like a story that toggles between timelines. We're always the product of the stuff that comes before, and I think often that's what makes, often that's the kind of, um, the thing that waits a, a single moment it is often the weight of backstory, and it, and maybe maybe there are writers out there who think too much backstory gets a bad rap. But I personally, I quite like it, and so I I think I think maybe if you're if you can still keep that that movement forward, I think it en- enriches things. Well, I think in your work, especially, it's really crucial for character development, but then also it is that velocity or acceleration that's driving the plot forward and i think also you with that withholding Mm -hmm. you're able to like sprinkle it in Mm -hmm. so nicely oh thank you a lot of your stories have similar twists and turns often resolving with unexpected conclusions do you tend to map these out beforehand or do you sometimes find even yourself startled by the places your stories end up Always the latter, always the latter. You know, what is the famous quote that gets, it probably gets misattributed to lots of people, but it's that, you know, the, I know you know this, Hayden, because everyone talks about the the people who who write like they're driving in the darkness and you can only see as far as the headlights 
go. I feel like I've heard that attributed to lots of people. So forgive me, whoever the actual person is. I'm always driving by, driving at night with headlights, and I don't know where I'm going. Um, and it's always that kind of like there's an, there's an interesting situation, and then I kind of have to work my way out of it. And and usually it is the the sort of thing where if I'm holding my own interest, then it's it's working. That's the only way I know how because I I know people I know people that I respect very much and they apparently can write towards an ending, but I don't I don't think I know how to do that. And maybe maybe, maybe you just come out the gate one way or the other. But but yeah, I'm always surprised. Along the lines of the twists and turns, how do you build suspense in your story? Or is it just something that happens naturally as you're moving towards this thing that maybe yeah. is suspenseful to you yourself? Oh, I, I love all these questions. Part of it must be atmosphere, because I, I was thinking about that with a story that I was recently editing so so definitely a, a a bit of it is must be atmosphere and then i think you know it 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 must be there there's a question hanging in the balance i think that drives it then the only other thing i think it probably just has to do with my the taste that i've built up as a reader there's something i i i sort of think i'm going to go out on a limb and make the assertion i think that the short story in particular, I think it, it is kind of an inherently suspenseful form. And I've I've often said to myself, um, I think every story is a ghost story in a way. You know, I, I think there it, it's, it's always a kind of haunting that's happening. There doesn't have to be a literal ghost. But I think partly just the the nature of the the form, the brevity of the form, it being concise, I think you're you are working with you've, you've got plenty of space you've got a fair amount of words but you're always in tension with the part that's not on the page and the white space and and the the way that you can signal towards that or sort of point an, an arrow towards that and thus build suspense so you you kind of do some of the work by what you are as you're talking about leaving out well you saying that is really interesting just that the short story is inherently kind mm-hmm. of a suspenseful form. It makes me think of so many authors that come to mind quickly. Yeah. Like Flannery O'Connor, yes. I feel like, has some very suspenseful kind of unsettling stories. Yes. Where are you going? Where have you been? That haunts me. You have landed on two of my of my go-to favorite. Yes, yes, 100%. I've been seeing this... Lately, people in the literary world talking about, or even outside of the literary world, what was that story that you read in school that stuck with you and freaks you out to this day? And it was so interesting to see people were, it was online, people were saying the lottery, yes, Ray Ray Bradbury's stories. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned this, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't say this except I think Joyce Carol Oates is enough of a, major established presence in American letters. And she's written enough that, frankly, she can afford to have great, great, great stories and then stories that I think, for me personally, are a little bit less successful. And um, recently, the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, someone selected a story of hers. I think it's 
zombie or zombie. Anyway, it's it's in the JCO suspenseful, creepy vein, but I kind of hated it. And I kind of hated it because it was, to me, it kind of stepped over that line into being way too overt, almost like outright horror. And I thought like, and again, she's always, I mean, she, she can make impeccable sentences. She can, you know, don't come after me, JCO, you're great. But to me, it was, it, it was exactly represented, I think, what sort of the opposite of what I think makes Where Are You Going so amazing because what that does, what it holds back is part of the power. Absolutely. And I think that comes through so much in your work as well. One story of yours that I think does this really excellently is The Whaler's Wife. The story follows Gracie's summer volunteering at a youth education program while staying with the Whitworths, a family that annually hosts the program's volunteers. Throughout her stay, Gracie uncovers the family's past and finds herself suspicious that they may have been involved in a murder. Will you read some of it for us? I would love to. As the evening went on, the partygoers talked louder and louder. I could sense Mr. Whitworth on the periphery. I could not help myself but be ever aware of his specific location in any room. Later, after everyone had left, I helped clean up. I was stacking plates in the sink when I heard laughter outside and walked to the back patio. Mrs. Whitworth sat perched on her husband's lap, holding a glass of wine. She draped his arm over her shoulder, nestling against him. A success, she said, raising her wine glass. She leaned down to kiss him. Don't you think, Gracie, a real success? She laughed, half sliding off her husband's lap, and I realized she was very drunk. Mr. Whitworth caught my eye and then brushed a lock of hair from his wife's face with practiced gentleness. Come, dear, he said. Let me put you to bed. Gracie will clean up the rest, won't you, Gracie? I nodded stupidly. It was too apparent now. I was their help, a charity case of sorts. The backward girl being introduced to high culture, but only from the sidelines. A cater waiter goggling at the ball. No wonder DeMarquet had hated the Whitworths, I thought. I gathered smudged glasses and empty bottles, little napkins flecked with remnants of cheese, and dumped these all in the kitchen. There, I poured myself a large glass of leftover champagne, and downed it in a single swig. It wasn't cold anymore, the bubbles going flat. I drank a second glass, half of a third. My head chimed like a bell. Closing my eyes, I wondered what my fellow volunteers were doing. Preeti had invited me to a party hosted by Ahmed and Cole at the apartment they shared. I was missing it, having agreed to serve drinks here with the Whitworths. I leaned over and pressed my forehead against the cool granite countertop, dizzy and tired. Footsteps behind me, and it was Mr. Whitworth. Bronson, he smiled at me. Thank you, Gracie, he said. She passed right out. Another sign the night was a success. He had two glasses of whiskey in hand, and he handed me one. Join me for a nightcap? a nightcap with something old-fashioned couples drank in black and white. I knew this and was flattered, this dashing stranger so attentive, and to me, no less, Bronson, the murderer, 
It was a sensual word. There was someone giddy and reckless chattering in my brain whom I did not recognize. I took the glass and he motioned to me so I followed him. He led me out of the kitchen into the quiet staircase where he turned to wink at me, making a shushing gesture with his finger. I followed him up quietly, clutching the rickety banister. We made our way down, past the closed door where Margot slept her champagne sleep, to the hallway's far end. Mr. Whitworth turned the knob carefully and pushed a door gently open. I followed him inside. He closed the door behind us and gestured for me to sit down on the edge of the bed. It was cool in the room and smelled of lemon cleaner. Already, I knew this was the room that DeMarque had spoken of, but it was disappointingly plain. There were no obvious signs of struggle, no bloodstains, no stifled energy I could discern. The bed was neatly made, and there was a dresser above which sat a beveled mirror. The dresser top was still scattered with perfumes and makeup cases, hairbands, and a brush, the ephemera of a young woman. Otherwise, the room was bare. I took a burning sip of whiskey and saw that my hand was shaking. Mr. Whitworth smiled gently at me, like a surgeon who can sense his patient is nervous, but he did not speak. Setting his own glass down, he put both hands on my shoulders. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room, located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings, Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. As I was reading the collection, I noticed in the stories and others, like the films of Roman Polanski and writing, some of those elements we talked about earlier that kind of seem to veer slightly into the horror mm -hmm. or suspense genre. But they aren't strictly horror. They read like realism and remain infused with a level of darkness and suspense. What compels you to write stories influenced by horror? Are there things about this genre that excite you? Yeah, yeah. Oh, definitely. And I think it does go to that that idea of suspense. And I, I'm probably I'm probably being overly picky about nomenclature because I think you're right. It's fair to say the word horror, but but in my mind, in my mind, I do draw that distinction where I sort of consider horror more <laughs> more bloody and overt, like more like like you see the 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 violence or the and and I actually don't really like it but I do love good old fashioned suspense or kind of that that psychological I don't know I mean you think of things like Henry James the Turn of the Screw of course would be like a, a classic example of this or even Du Maurier Rebecca I, I I like it where there is a feeling there's a clear feeling of threat that the threat is there and I like to maybe obliquely allude to suspense or horror or, or or ghost story or something kind of more clearly genre. But I, I sort of feel that 
even without dipping into that, I think the, the, the real terrors that exist in the world are obvious and realist and present. And so I think that in, in a way, I use it as a device to approach those real things more obliquely. You kind of took my next question <laughs> out of my mouth. So in my reading, I absolutely noticed that I feel like your work is kind of a commentary on some of these social yeah. anxieties. And in this story, there's the possible murder, but it's presented alongside a threat that feels much more likely to appear yeah. in the outside world in Mr. Whitworth's yeah. advances on Gracie. Is this interweaving of social injustice and suspense something you're interested in? And if so, how do you see it play out in your other stories? I think you're a genius reader, Hayden. I think you're, yeah, yes, Thank you. yes, and yes, and yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I am a subscriber of that idea that all those Victorian ghosts were, were <laughs> the ghosts rattling in the attics were, you know, lots of sexual repression and fear and all these very real and present anxieties get transmogrified into ghosts and spirits and and hauntings. Yeah, I I just I just think it's the the richest and most productive tension that that I think that we are we are creatures who we we seek belief and we seek narrative. We are narrative making creatures and I think sometimes when we can't, maybe we aren't ready or we aren't able to construct a narrative, the very plainest narrative that's right here, we may not be able to create, but it, we can make an angle, come over here and make a narrative that's that's more indirect, but actually gets at the, the thing that we're feeling. I said that very badly, but you're nodding. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I, I think it is. It's a kind of sleight of hand. And I think it's a it's a really rich sleight of hand. But I, I do think that, and I think that is part of our attraction to ghost stories, suspense, creepiness. I mean, what what are the the deep fears, mortality, sexual aggression, violence, all of this stuff. I think that's, the, I am more interested when it plays out in, in literature in those ways than if it's a axe-wielding murderer. The majority of your protagonists are women. Mm -hmm. And while you place them into strange and spooky circumstances, cemeteries, attics full of dolls, the heart of your story's conflicts are based in more real concerns yeah. about the female experience, be that postpartum depression, sexual assault, or an abusive partner. How do you approach writing into these topics? I think it's, it's, I guess it's just hard to, it's hard not to to live as a woman in the world and and want to write things and and not be drawn to these uh, subjects. So I, I think that is probably honestly as simple as that. And I think uh, particularly right now with with I think the ways in which women's autonomy and I, I you know we we live in a challenging time in so many ways. But I think that. It's hard also not to feel like maybe we're taking steps back as as far as um, how women are treated in the world. And so, I mean, I really do. It, it it sounds very simple, but I I live in the world as a woman. I live in the world the world as someone who's had these concerns. I happen to have two daughters, you know. And then in my day to day work as a psychiatrist, I certainly do work with 
plenty of of men and and non-binary patients as well, but I work with a lot of women. And so a lot of the things in my day-to-day practice that I'm hearing about, they are these concerns. And I read a lot of women, to to be honest, a a lot of women and and non-binary writers. I, you know, I read some men too, (laughs) but, um, but uh, yeah, I think, I think that's really it. That's so wonderful. And I, I also read a lot of women. I, I just think there's a lot of important stories that still need to be told. And I think you touch on some really important issues, but in a way that feels very fresh with that kind of same approach to suspense that we were talking about earlier. Thank you. How do you find inspiration for the aspects of your stories that align more traditionally with some of those horror influences, the devil boy or the thing in the woods eating the neighborhood children? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mostly read if, if we had to really classify everything and I know that everything's on a spectrum, including literature, but I, for lack of a better term, I will say I mostly read literary air quotes literary fiction i mean that that's really that's really what i i mostly read but i do enjoy other writers who i feel like have an element of what what i would call maybe the uncanny i um i once made a little reading list for you know those reading lists on electric literature i made a list of i think i think that a lot of what we would consider mainstream literary writers like Lauren Groff or even Sarah Shen Bynum here. I think I think they're I see their work at least as tapping into that. I also think lately we've had people like Carmen Maria Machado. I mean there there's been this kind of very lovely to me blurring of the genre categories. What I don't really read and and you know it is what it is, I don't really read if it the the, the true genre stuff. I mostly don't read that. And I've tried I've actually tried one time to write something that fell more clearly in a that category. And I, I don't think I was super successful. So um I, I'm I'm mostly drawing from kind of literary influences. Would you consider the kind of evils in your stories to be influenced by pop culture, folklore, or are they more just things that come to you? They're totally, they're totally influenced by pop culture and folklore. Yeah, I'm real. I love an urban legend. Like if if you've got an urban legend, if you've got a Sewanee campus ghost story, I love that stuff. But I also think, again, I think like like <laughs> we're narrative making creatures, and I think this is the stuff of this is the stuff of of storytelling. I love it. There's the one story in here that I mean, it's kind of one of the weirder, darker ones. But I remember that the, the two reasons I wrote it, one was because my husband, who's also a writer, we were talking about unsettling names and names that were unsettling, not because they were Bob, the chainsaw murderer. We, they, were, they were unsettling in a, in a subtle way. So we were talking about Arnold Friend from, from Where Are You Going? Where are you? It was just like, to the perfect Arnold Friend. It's, it's so, why is it so creepy? But it is. Or in the beginning of The Exorcist, the little girl before she gets possessed, she, I think it's like Captain Howdy. She says, oh, Captain Howdy has been. So my husband said, well, well I've got a name for you. And he said, Mr. Forble. 
And so, so he gave, he fed me that name and it was like, all right, I'm going to write a story about this. And, and then at the same time there had been, I don't know if you remember this, you know how there are these like viral internet hoax memes. There was this really creepy image. And I think it later turned out to be an artist from Japan, maybe. And it was this kind of bird faced woman but it was it, the the legend on the internet that it was the it was the Momo challenge, and it was popping up on the internet to oh, you know, make your children do. You know, it was like you saw it and you did something. Anyway, it was a very very look it up because it's a really creepy image. But that story also sort of like seized my imagination, and I think just like there is something creepy in general about internet virality. Like there's something sort of deeply unsettling about that. But that that story kind of came out of both of those things. There are definitely things on the internet that are just yes. so spooky. Yes. I was remembering, I think this was in like 2015, uh-huh. 16, when there were just all of those images of like clowns yes. in neighborhoods. Yes. What, what was that? Okay, Hayden, I'll tell you a secret. I completely wrote a story about a clown and, and it probably was it probably was right after that 2015 resurgence in my first collection there is a story about the clown panic because again i think it's it's a stand in for it clearly clearly it's a stand in for something else that unsettles us or probably several things that that unsettles but yes i am i'm fascinated by that stuff so cool yeah. but so weird <laughs> I asked you earlier how writing poetry has shaped your fiction. How does your experience in psychiatry affect your writing, or do you find that it does? I, 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 I'm sure it does because I think whatever one does, living life, you're gonna you're gonna metabolize that, and it's gonna become the the stuff of of your writing. I always feel a little self conscious because I always think, well, gosh, if I were going to my doctor, therapist, whoever, I would feel a little weird about them being a writer. So I always feel like I have to give a disclaimer and say what I what I never do and what I would never feel comfortable with is even if I did it in a HIPAA compliant way, I would feel very uncomfortable and kind of vulturish about directly lifting something that let's say a patient told me and then kind of fictionalizing it. But I mean, again, it's like we're metabolizing everything, bits and pieces. I'm talking to tons of people. I'm, I'm th- during the day. I am thinking about <laughs> concerns, you know, loneliness, longing, frustration. Like I'm, I'm thinking about this stuff all the time. So I am sure that it, I'm sure it informs my work. What I'm absolutely certain of, though, is that being a reader and a thinker of story and character certainly informs my work as a psychiatrist. Like that is undoubtedly true. Not to say that one, I think there are probably plenty of good psychiatrists out there who aren't readers, but but I, I think for me, think, doing that deep kind of work, thinking about characters on the page, I think, I, I, I think it brings something to my practice. I was a psychology minor oh, nice. here along with my English major. And I do think Not necessarily so explicitly, but I do think that there are ways that the two are connected and just that that interest of why people 
act the way that they do. Right. Right. Well, and I and I'm often thinking, I mean, as a as a general statement about story, I'm often really interested in why why do you know an otherwise reasonable person why why would they do an unreasonable thing or why do they get themselves into a a, a, a dicey situation. I think that's very interesting, and it happens. And I think it's interesting to think about. Okay, like what are what is going on that that leads a person into that that situation? Is there a story in the collection that took you the longest to write? Oh, good question. You know, uh, there were two that I think I started and then came back to one was actually the whaler's wife which I, I i started and i had a a gut feeling about that situation but then i kind of left it and then came back to it and then the other one was darling which i started in it and it that's the story for for the listeners it's one that is kind of derived from thinking about Jeffrey Epstein in that situation. And I, oh my gosh, and what's the woman's name who was his, his, uh, she was recently sentenced. I'm whatever, I'm blanking on her name, but that was the part that kind of fascinated me the most is like, how could you get into that situation? And especially, especially as the woman in the situation who is kind of pulling these other vulnerable people into it. So I started that one. And then sometimes I really go in this, I don't know what happens. The 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 wild spirits move me and I go in a very bizarre direction. And I kind of have to like put it aside a, a while and rein it back in. So it went, it, it originally had a very improbable ending. And I was like, I'm not going to do anything with this. It's going in the trash. And I pulled it back out and came back to it and sort of like re reworked the ending. But that took a little while. When you do find yourself kind of getting stuck on a story, what are your strategies for reworking it or yeah. coming back to it? How do you find your flow again? Sometimes it is through the help of my husband, I'll say his name in case anyone wants to seek him out because he really is, I will say he is one of the best readers and editors and thinkers. Matthew Buckley Smith, he he writes poetry and, and fiction and other things, but he he has a very, unlike me, I think I have a very intuitive approach. He has a steel trap analytical structure mind. And I think partly it's because he has training as a playwright as well. And I think that maybe the gift of the gift of thinking about plays is that you're really thinking in terms of of the architecture. And I think there's something about what he is able to do where he can he can read what I'm doing. And it's almost like I've built sort of a wobbly Lego house and he can sort of like see the actual blueprint of the house I'm trying to build. So he is I don't know what, like, like to be grandiose, if, if I'm Raymond Carver, he's my Gordon Lish, but uh, he's my number one help. And then the other thing that happens is sometimes I just write really bad stories and, and they're just bad. And sometimes I'll be in denial and sometimes I'll like, I don't know, fire them off into the submittable 
files of magazine. I, you know, I, I just do that. And I've just come to peace with the fact that like, that's just going to be a thing that I do. And then eventually I will, I always know in the back of my mind, it's not working, but like, eventually I'll, I'll, I'll see the writing on the wall and I'll be like, okay, this just, this just doesn't, it, it, there's something about it where I, I need to abandon it. That has to be hard, though, to have that kind of awareness about your own work. Yeah, I mean, it's I I wish I had better awareness because I still I still will fire it off a few because it's like I want to I want to believe in it. You know, I want to I've written some I mean, and again, I think this is part of the issue if, if you have a little bit of an appetite for the weird Sometimes it's just it's just too weird, and it's weird in a way that's not not in a cool way. Not because there are pe- people who are very like cool weird writers. It's just weird in a unfashionable way. And um, but but I also I do think I just think you have to get it all out. I think all writing is good writing, and I think you you have to look at it like you you've written that, and you got it out of your system, and now you can move on to the next thing that hopefully is coming. That seems like a really wonderful approach because I do think as writers, there are things that you get yeah. fixated on and it may not be what everyone else is interested in. But for you, that's still an important yes. story to tell. Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. The, I think you may have been a wiser undergraduate than, than I am, but I still my big my big like work that I had to give up when I was an undergrad, I remember for some reason I thought I was going to write a multi-part poem. It had like a villanelle, it had a, and it was going to be about the story that I heard about it. <laughs> Why am I telling this? About a ghost lumberjack called Crushface. It was a camp legend that someone had told me. And for some reason it just like burrowed into my little imagination. I thought, well, this is the stuff of magic. I'm going to do a whole. And I did it and it was ridiculous. But you know what? Like, you just have to do those things. You've got to make them because that's what it's that's what it's about. You know, what does the writing process look like for you? Do you have specific hours that you sit down at your computer or is it more often something that you do in the moment as inspiration strikes? And how has this changed over the course of your time as a writer? Ooh, I wish I had a, a specific practice. I always listen to author interviews and envy the people who, ha- you know, they get up at five. They have a word count that they do every day. I've tried and I always aspire to do that, but I don't have it. My gift is not consistency, but my gift is efficiency. I'm, I'm, I'm startlingly efficient once I get traction I'm maybe unnervingly efficient but I I can't be consistent and I think the thing is I you know I I love my work in a certain way but I would be happy if I could work 30 percent time I I have pretty consuming full-time work and then I've got two little kids and the pandemic so I I honestly that when I'm not writing I'm like I don't know how I ever could possibly write but somehow sometime I must be doing it cuz I've I've done it but in any given moment I don't know how <laughs> how it's going to happen again. I heard somebody they were maybe a filmmaker where did I read this but they they were like you know no one ever says they don't have time to have an affair. And I sort of feel like it's like when you're having an affair with a story you're going to find the time to to have the affair with this right but when you're not you know so yeah I think that's a really great way to look at it and well and I think too sometimes for me at least in the moments where I feel like I'm on a schedule I need to sit down and crank something 
out. Yeah. Those are the hardest times to write. Yeah. It's it's when you feel like almost you are having those sneaky yes. moments yes. to get away with your story. Yes. Oh, when you're in the thrall of it. I mean, that that's the thing is like, I think I, I do believe, at least for me, and again, there there will later be a self-loathing phase, but I do believe there has to be a, a sort of like self-intoxication phase where like I'm just like, oh my God, this is genius. Call call all the editor. Like I'm in, I'm in my own thrall. And I need that to sort of like get in and get it and get it done. And then it's, you know, it's like it's like waking up with a hangover later and you're like, oh no, it's not. But I but I do think you kind of need that to to pull you through sometime. I think it's important to run with that first, yes. those instincts. Yeah. What advice would you give your younger writer self? Don't be afraid to write the things that you are reading. I, I think I would have told myself, go ahead. You, I mean, you love stories. You love fiction. Go ahead and, and write it. I, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't feel allowed. And, it, and I, and again, you know what? I'm fine. Maybe I think that this was, probably the way that it was meant to be. That's how I how I choose to look at it. But I, I do think that I would have given myself permission, if you will, to to start writing stories and fiction a little sooner. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I've really enjoyed getting the chance to talk to you, to hear more about your collection. It's it's just been a joy. Oh, thank you so much. I love the Sewanee Review. Y'all are the best. It was a thrill to publish Rome in your pages, and it was a delight to be here. Thank you, Aiden. Thank you for listening to the Swanee Review podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Swanee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at www.theswaneereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Swanee Review. Until next time, this is the Swanee Review, new since 1892.